0: And we are back. To another, another edition, I think, what is this, number 20, 20 I think. 20,
1: 21, 20? 20,
0: I think it's yeah. either 20 or 21 of Behind the Lens. And for those of you listening live today, it is Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day. Remember all of our veterans, uh, those that we have lost in battle, who uh, paid the ultimate price for us to be free and to be able to, in fact, exercise our First Amendment rights here on the air. So... Very important day. Well, this is also a very important day for us here at Behind the Lens. We are transitioning because Lydia is defecting. She is going to be leaving us, mm. moving across the country.
1: I want to say yay and boo at the same yeah, time. Boo because we're going to miss her. Yay
0: for her yay for, yeah, yeah. for good opportunities. Yes. But we have a big, huge yay. Of course, he may not think it's a yay, actually. Um, Jordan Johnson is here getting broken in today as our, as our new camera and editor person. He's going to
1: figure out if we're good to hang with. He's, he's, he's monitoring fi- the whole he's, thing. He's, right?
0: he's going right. to figure it out. Um,
1: and Brian's still here.
0: And Brian is here. If Brian leaves, we're dead.
1: <laughs> uh, no, I, I think it'd be better off. Uh, Brian is the straw that stirs the drink.
0: Yes, he is. Yes, he is. But I have to say, I'm very, I'm very excited for Lydia. I'm very excited to have Jordan join us. Yes. Um, he came when I put out a call. SOS saying help I need to find someone not that anybody can really ever replace Lydia no, um, no. for me and you know that more better than anyone I
1: am replaceable though by the way so just
0: oh, man interchangeable you? parts just oh, Jesus. little wheel
1: put me but, in there. Uh, but but yeah, Jordan yeah so three different yeah. people Wow
0: three people said you have to talk to Jordan
1: okay and how did that interview with Jordan go when you met him
0: officially officially officially, officially yeah, yeah. it was lovely. Okay. It was lovely. Okay, good. It was over cocktails.
1: Okay, good. I'm I'm glad you, you had the water.
0: At the backstage. Okay,
1: at the backstage,
0: okay. Of course. You, you know, the, anybody looking for actors for film crews, I'm telling you, that is the place to go. You get people from Sony. You get people from the old Culver. A lot of the employees there are only working part-time because they are, they are filmmakers and actors and actresses in their own right. And many of them, you know, have some very lucrative... Performance careers going on, so your location in Culver City. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. we got we have a fun show today um, at eleven thirty. We're going to be celebrating Memorial Day and family and whatnot with with now. Where's my notes? There it is. Ryan Nagata and George Edelman, uh, co-writers, and Ryan is director. George Edelman is producer of. A new comedy horror film coming out on VOD and Digital on June 2nd, Amigo Undead.
1: Amigo Undead. My yeah. best friend's, her, her dog is named Amigo. So I was thinking of a zombie dog when I was watching the movie. Because that's, the name of the dog is Amigo. Lord but it's not me. a zombie dog movie. It's a, def, it's a different type of film.
0: It is a different type of yeah. film. But brothers, camping, get into the whole holiday spirit here. But first, talking about family... Courtney Cox.
1: Oh, Courtney Cox. You know, um, I I really love. Just before I go, came out on Blu-ray mid-May, and you know, I, I feel that movie should get a lot more attention.
0: Than yeah, that. it's on VOD now, and I and I have to admit that I did watch it again, and I paid my money to Time Warner Cable. Oh,
1: okay. Okay. Cool. So, in the second viewing, did you appreciate it more?
0: Even more because it was I could see more things, and I wasn't looking at it strictly from a critical point of view. Uh, I was able to sit and just enjoy what she was creating.
1: Yeah, it's essentially, just before I go, it was about... Sean William Scott plays a guy, a down-on-his-luck guy. He, he's a manager at a pet store, I think. And and he's, uh, he comes home, and his wife is cheating on him, and she leaves him. And he, des- he decides that his life really means nothing, and he, he decides to actually commit suicide. And it's actually kind of a really uh, serious subject matter, yeah. when I come to think of it. but. You know, Courtney Cox spins it as a black comedy, and it's about mm-hmm. him returning to his hometown to settle a score with a couple of people, but along the way, family lovingly gets in the way of his plans, and kind of comedic-slash-tragedy ensues. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, so, as we talked about a few weeks ago, when we were talking about Courtney working with water, when we had our, our water theme yeah. going with the Drownsmen and Courtney with Just Before I Go, um... And that was, you know, an irreverent comedy. Courtney is prone to irreverent comedy.
1: Yeah, and, you know, speaking of Courtney, if you pick up the Blu-ray, check out the director's commentary because she has some really nuts and bolts lessons on the challenges and perils and the joys of indie filmmaking. And there's a couple of little kind of facts that I I had no idea about. For example, like she – the beginning of the movie, as you know, it has a very light, frothy kind of score. Mm Mm-hmm. And she actually asked director Gus Van Zandt on how to actually score the film, what kind of tone did she want to convey. You know, because the movie itself is very serious, but the score actually, Mm -hmm. the the light score underlines the whole kind of change in tone in the movie. So stuff like that. I had no idea that Sean Williams Scott had tattoos on his hands, so they had to color correct his hand. So uh, a lot of really interesting stuff on that Blu-ray. And during the interview, which we both... We were at, yes. Yeah, I talked to Courtney, and she explained how... Just before I go, was a complete family experience for her.
2: I, I'm that's who I am in life. I'm really close. I I've, I'm, I'm all about community, family. So it it was that way in making the movie. It was that way in finding something. I mean, if I as I name the movies I love, they're all about family. I love family drama. I love you know ordinary people. I love all those movies. Kramer versus Kramer was one of my favorite films. Anything to do with real life, real people. I mean, my family alone is a lot of these characters in this movie. So, yes, family is important, and I relied on a lot of family for uh, in making it as well. I mean, Coco sings in it. Johnny, my fiancé, him and Gary Lightbody, Snow Patrol, wrote three of the songs, original songs in it. Um, David's in the movie. And that's
0: ex-husband David Arquette.
1: And obviously, to save a little bit of money, they shot scenes from just before I go at her house. At her house, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so.
0: So now, and, you know, I had a chance to also follow up. We heard Courtney talk the other week a little bit about a first-time director filming in water, the challenges of that. Mm -hmm. But what a lot of people still may not realize is that Courtney is, she's not a first-time director. She directed a Lifetime telemovie, and she directed about 12 or 13 episodes of her series Cougar Town. But when, as any director will tell you, when you make the jump from seri- episodic TV to feature film, there, is, there are some differences. But Courtney has a really great perspective on it, and here's what she had to say about that. Courtney, you're no stranger to directing. You've directed at least a dozen episodes of Cougar Town. You did a lifetime movie. You did a short. Do you find a learning curve between going from episodic television
2: into feature film? I think it's. I, I, I know this seems strange, but you have so much more. Well, obviously, you have more freedom when you do a feature. It's easier to tell the story to do episodic television, and, and I'm, I can only speak. On, I've only done Cougar Towns, but you want to make you want to do something that set yourself apart from every other. You got to follow the format, but you also want to do make your own mark on it. And with everything going so fast, you have to actually think: How can I make this more interesting? How can I do it different than just? You know, master, coverage, coverage, coverage. So I think doing Cougar Town actually made me, you know, I had to think on my feet faster to make it more interesting for me. I'm not saying anybody else could notice it, but the little things. And then you inevitably cut most of the stuff out because it's so quick. But anyway, I think that was a great training for me to be able to go, oh, I have freedom now. I can do this in one shot. I don't have to go tight there. Oh, this is great. I can use long lenses. I've, I don't have to do it on the sound stage. It's just, it, it's nice to direct and have... Freedom, And I'm really specific about the way things look, and that's fun. I I, I, I like to have that freedom.
0: And you could tell when we were talking to her, she truly was excited about the feature film experience.
1: You know, what's also interesting about her is because of her career, her prolific career, she could have actually, I'm guessing, transitioned to feature filmmaking with kind of close to a romantic comedy or drama tentpole type Mm -hmm. of film with a bigger budget, but with, you know, probably not as good material. Mm-hmm. So I think with her first feature directing debut, mm-hmm. she went for the material. She went for the script. And, you know, kudos to that. So I really enjoyed the film.
2: Yeah,
0: and that, yeah. that's something that we hear so often from actors and from directors. It's, it boils down to the page.
1: Yeah.
0: It boils down to the page, you know, the printed word, what is inspiring them. And, you know, when it comes to inspiration, I think one of the most inspiring films of the year just opened this weekend, Tomorrowland.
1: Ah, Tomorrowland. Yeah. 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 It had a lot of vision, and it made a couple bucks over the weekend. It
0: made a couple bucks over the weekend, but, you know, it also has a a few little flaws in it. Now, I'd have to say, technically, Brad Bird and his team, Scott Shambliss, the production designer, just went Above and beyond with those huge set pieces that were built. Um, they did not do CGI on this whole film. Mm. Uh, but I think there were some wasted opportunities.
1: On the good note, though, I love Britt Robertson. She's a great lead, and I think she really anchors the film. You know, even though George Clooney's prominently in the trailer along with her, I think she it's really her film.
0: Well, and hand-in-hand hand with Britt, I think, is Rafi Cassidy. Right, right, yeah. He plays a character, yeah. Athena. Um, and Tomorrowland, because there's still so many people that haven't seen it, and Disney really did want, has wanted to keep all the... You know, a lot of this under wrap as to what un, what happens in this film. So we're being sketchy. Uh. <laughs> you know,
1: my, only, my, my thing with the movie is, you know, you have a really nuanced eye as far as the technical details and the visual details. For me... It didn't emotionally grab me because I wanted to live more in Tomorrowland without giving too much away. And a lot of it, to me, as far as the plot mechanics, it was a big part of the movie was about getting there. And I wish they kind of luxuriated in that area, that arena, that environment a lot longer Mm -hmm. to give us a more resonant feel. But that's just my take as far as all the production design and the actors and and the vision of bird, um, you got to give him credit. But it just, I thought I was going to be emotionally grabbed, but it left me wanting. Um, what about you?
0: Well, with this particular one, what really motivated me, what inspired me, okay. um, and it, uh, it did tap into the dreamer within me, and a lot of that was due to the dialogue and to some very powerful monologues that Clooney had. Because Clooney goes, his character goes from being a wide-eyed, Young boy in 1964 filled with all the hope and wonder of NASA and technology and where we're going in the universe to a very cynical 50-some-year-old man at all the disaster we see in the world. It is because of George Clooney that we have – so many of us, our eyes have been opened to what goes on in the world, to the horrors in the world and how we can stop it. George Clooney was the first person to really put eyes on Darfur – Right. And, you know, it's through him that many of us have – our social awareness has been opened. And the hope for a better life, which is why some of the, the monologues are so powerful and speak so loudly. And George actually, at the press day for the film, he actually talked about, you know, his experience growing up and what brought him to the character of Frank Walker and the world of Tomorrowland.
3: I actually, uh, I grew up during the Cold War period, and I always found that, although we always thought that the world would end with the something, it was pretty hopeful. There was an awful lot of things going on that you felt you could change. I grew up in an era where the voice and power of B1 really did feel as if it mattered. You know, we had the, the you know, obviously the, the riots that are I mean, that we're looking at today, but we had the civil rights movement, Vietnam. And all those things that you felt you could actually have some part of changing. And actually, if you look at the things that changed in the 60s and early 70s, it divorces did make a difference. It wasn't governments doing it necessarily. So uh, I I didn't ever have that great disappointment in mankind. I always felt like it was going to work out in the end. And I still feel that way. And so, what I loved about the film was that it reminds you that. You know, young people don't wake up They're not
0: born and, and start out their lives cynical or angry or they get if we
3: talk about things. And I watch the world now and think, well, I see really good signs from young people out there. And I feel as if uh, the world will get better. I, I've always been an optimist. I've been a real but I've been an optimist i about it.
0: And we're talking Brad Bird and screenwriter Damon Lindelof
1: With little context though I still haven't seen Iron Giant The Iron Giant or The Incredibles So within that kind of oeuvre of birds (laughs) So maybe, you know what, I'm thinking If I saw both those films going into Tomorrowland Hmm. And seeing where he comes from On a creative and philosophical aesthetic I I think I would have appreciated the movie On a much deeper level like, like you did
0: well, you know, And one thing that I think it is safe to divulge to people is because Walt Disney uh, was very, uh, a very prominent presence in the 1964 World's Fair. Right. And it was the debut of It's a Small World Ride. And yeah. yes, we do get a taste of that. And you get to hear that theme song that will stay in your head for days and days and days, <laughs> and days to come.
1: Oh, the opening moments. It is are... a small
0: world after all. Yeah.
1: The opening moments of the film are very evocative too.
0: They, they really are. Yeah, yeah. They are. But I think it's, you know, even if you don't get inspired or it doesn't tap into the dreamer in you, I think the visionary aspect of the film, the visuals are just well worth it. And I'm calling it now, Michael G, uh, Giacchino, who did the score. Yeah. It is it, Oscar nomination, hand aid, And I wouldn't be surprised if he pulls out a win next year.
1: Well, it was co-written by Lindelof, right? Oh, wait. who?
0: I'm talking about the score right now. Yeah, but, yeah,
1: yeah he, he wrote... so. Damon Lindelof, um, he produced Lost, and its score was penned, composed by Giacchino, and he has mm-hmm. one of my favorite scores. Um, there's an episode on Lost called "The Constant," scored mm-hmm. by Giacchino, and very emotional moment for me. I love, I love that episode from Lost, and I love Giacchino as a composer. Yeah, and so, his score here is excellent. fabulous. Yeah, it's
0: and you know, I mean, he scored Cars too. I mean, he's one of the few men in the world that I think could actually score music for, you know, Mater in a bathroom in Tokyo. So, with that being said, going to break. Behind the lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer, located in the heart of Screenland. Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. We are back. Welcome back to Behind the Lens, Monday, May 25th, 2015. I'm here with my partner in cinematic crime, Greg Srizavazdi. So this is
1: pretty corny. Have you ever danced on the edge?
0: Oh, I... I <laughs> that I, is pretty
1: corny, that, but... That's
0: pretty corny. Yeah, so. um, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything about that. You're not at liberty that. to
1: discuss previous matters N- in no, the past. No, okay. no. Well, yesterday I spent six to seven hours in my little cubbyhole of a room watching this series called... Dancing on the Edge, starring Matthew Good and Chiwetel Ejiofor, and it's the first series I've completed. in. I guess it's lost. It's, I, I haven't been watching shows, TV shows, just on a binge level for a long time. And it recently came out on Blu-ray via PBS, and it's a, an amazing series. It's kind of a kind of a mixture of a whodunit, murder mystery, drama, romantic drama, and it has a lot of jazz. And as well uh, Matthew good He plays a music journalist In London In the early 1930s And he's trying to he's, a, he's kind of a glad-handing Talented journalist He's very good in promotions And he sees this band Led by Chiwetel Ejiofor Oscar-winning mm-hmm. actor, right? No, did he win the Oscar for that? No, that film won the Oscar Did he win the
0: Oscar? I don't remember I don't think Anyway, so. he's a
1: great actor I loved him in this movie Called Spartan as well So Chiwetel, he's a band leader Jazz band leader Plays the piano And Matthew um, tries to get uh, Chiwetel and his band to play in this hotel in L- London called The Imperial. And it's kind of a shaggy, once once prestigious, but kind of shaggy dog hotel. And he wants them to bring business to the place. And everything's going really great. They're buddy-buddy until a murder occurs. And what ensues is, like, six-plus hours of jazz music, some really intense romantic scenes. If you like Matthew Good or Chiwetel and... Some really good romantic sequences there, but essentially, I was watching all recently those promos for the second season of True Detective, mm-hmm. and Chiwetel and Matthew have such chemistry that if they ever did some kind of Brit version of True Detective third season, they'd make great detectives c- because they play off. That's pretty much the bread and butter of Dancing mm-hmm. on the Edge is their innate chemistry, and it's so funny the murder mystery that Who Done It ends actually a lot earlier than expected and the final episode of that first season. It's not, I think it was canceled. It's not going into a second season. But the, the final episode is actually an interesting recap of prior events. And it's all, um, since Matthew's the music journalist, the whole hour is spent him on him interviewing members of the band before oh. the actual murder took, took place. So it's a really interesting series. I really loved it. It's out on Blu-ray. I highly recommend it. Uh, there's a 20-minute special feature that I haven't seen yet that I'm mm-hmm. – after this show, I'm going to check it out. But that's why you haven't heard from me for the last couple days. I've been in my room watching Dancing on the Edge and uh, also me going dead. So
0: Oh, well yeah, There you go. But now Matthew Good, though. <laughs> I mean, you saw him in Stoker.
1: I, You know, Stoker's one of my – because I love that kind of – I love visualists. Yes. Uh, guys like Brian De Palma, Alfred Hitchcock, and I'm blanking on that director's name right now. It, it The movie was penned by – Wentworth Miller. The,
0: I just – that is still yeah. – the visuals on that and the performances. His performance yeah. was – and he joked with me because we've had a, a – uh, over the years, he had done that film with uh, Amanda Bynes where he plays the undercover uh, CIA guy who's protecting her. She's the president's daughter.
1: Right. And, okay, a long time ago, right? And
0: yeah. uh, I've seen it so many times, and he's always kidded me about – he goes – you're the only person. All the money off that I made off that film, you paid for. Um, so when I was <laughs> Stoker, and I said, "Okay, I'm in love with Stoker," he goes, "Thank God you can stop watching the other movie now."
1: Very quickly on Stoker, a beautiful film to watch. Definitely, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Nicole Kidman, Mia Waskowska also awesome. But the the thing that I really love about it, being a Hitchcock Hitchcock fan, is it seemed to me that Matthew Matthew Good kind of crib Joseph Cotton's performance in Shadow of a Doubt.
0: Very much so. It,
1: I'm not saying you stole it, but it just kind of, it echoes, and it's a great homage to that performance. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: And I st- that's one of Joseph Cotton's finest performances in Shadow of a Doubt. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. That yeah. is. And yeah.
0: as a matter of fact, TCM just uh, had it on within the past 10 days again. Okay,
1: cool. And cool. I
0: had to stop what I was doing in the middle of the night to watch it.
1: So you know what? Bottom line is uh, Matthew Good, underrated actor. Just start watching a lot of his. Mo- I don't even. I don't. I don't think I, s- I saw the movie that you were mentioning. You were referring to, but, but Stoker, uh, Dancing on the Edge, two great Matthew Good projects. So.
0: And actually, it may not be. It wasn't Amanda Bynes he was with. It was Mandy Mandy Moore. Oh, okay, Mandy Moore. Mandy Moore. Mandy cool. Moore. It's the same, we had all those father daughter overseas in Europe movies come out at the same time.
1: I'm not good with transition, but did a nightingale sing in Berkeley Square or not?
0: <laughs>
1: I love standards. So.
0: I have to say, Nightingale, and we'll, we'll probably get to most of, of this in the second half hour uh, after our, our boys for Amigo Undead call in. Nightingale, directed by my dear bandito brother friend, Elliot Lester. Nightingale was one of my must-see picks for LA Film Festival last year. And it is a performance that so many people missed of David Oyewelo. Everybody talked about his performance in Selma, quite honestly. His performance in Nightingale, Tour de Force. Wow. Puts his performance as Martin Luther King to shame.
1: That's kind of saying a lot.
0: It is the film. It's written by Frederick Mensch. It is mm. absolutely riveting. Riveting. Um David Oyelowo plays a character named Peter Snowden. He is a returning war vet. He lives at home with his mother. And there's something not quite right about him. And it's, it's through that that the film takes place within the confines of one house, the house he shares with his mother. Although we don't see his mother. Oh, wow. We don't see other people. So Everything is done, phones, laptops, computers, and Elliot and I get into all of that with the very in-depth interview that we did. But the whole film is David performing.
1: Wow. It sounds like kind of a Roman Polanski homage, kind of paranoid thriller, claustrophobic. And kind, kind
0: of. of descending into madness. Oh, wow. And, but he is just astounding. Astounding. Mm. But it looks like we're going to get to my interview clips with Elliot. Uh Shortly, because right now we have
4: gonna we're going to talk some we're people,
0: uh, we're going to talk some amigo and dead now, aren't we?
4: Hello, hello,
0: hello, boys. Hello,
4: hi, hi. <laughs> how are you? Thanks I'm
0: fine. So we've got Ryan Nagata and George Edelman on the line um, talking about. I think a perfect movie to talk about on Memorial Day when people are camping and having picnics (laughs) and parties. Um, Amigo Undead. Guys, this is, I don't know if Annie told you, your publicist Annie told you, but it's campy, it's cute, it's comedy horror, there's silly movie references, you've got character and horror cliches, but it's all done with this great loving touch. There's actually moments of sweetness in here in a horror film?
4: Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That's uh a very kind words.
0: This is um, I am one of the my most pleasant surprises of the year. Wow,
4: well that is great praise. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much.
0: So, you both you co you both co-wrote this?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Where's Ryan? Ryan directed?
4: Uh yeah. Ryan
0: okay. Right and then George you produced. Yes. And That's you guys cool. you guys have worked together before?
4: Oh yeah, a <laughs> so lot. We, we've been working together. We became friends in high school, and we started, you know, making stuff. To uh, we started making stuff together. Um, you know, as soon as we met, we were fifteen or sixteen. You know, in our spare time.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and uh, but now you yeah, kind of never ended. <laughs> but what you've now done, taking all your little shorts and all your little clips and your, you know, all of that. Now you have jumped in to the deep end of the pool with your first feature film.
5: Uh, yeah, it's true. The first feature film that anyone's going to see.
0: Uh, okay. Well, no, now wait a minute. Let's hear about in
5: college and high school. That. Uh, I, th- I,
0: somewhere. I think we need to hear about the others. I, I, I think we need to hear about the others. The minute you say that nobody's going to see, uh, oh. the red flag goes up. Well,
4: you know, we, you know, like a lot of people, I think of our sort of era grew up with the camcorders and, you know, you had access to making movies and videos and stuff. So we had it in our minds very early on that we wanted to make feature length films. So we were attempting that uh, probably before we were ready to, <laughs> and we were trying to sort of string together feature narratives and spent our summers and our free time filming and putting these things together, editing them on the earliest video editing stuff there was. And in a way, it, it sort of contributed to our learning about how the process works in a trial and error kind of manner. So, uh, yeah, there, there there's some movies in a drawer somewhere that we made a long time ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, what made this the right time for you to jump into a feature film? And specifically... A film like *Amigo Undead*.
5: Well, <coughs> we uh, George and I have done all kinds of, uh, and uh, I've directed some television sketch comedy on television, but we always really have had a, a passion for feature films. That's that's kind of what we wanted to do, and and we and I, I think we we got to the point where we were. Pitching web series and that sort of thing to various companies, and I think we just realized we, if we want
4: to make movies, we, we really have to just go Make a movie. And make one, yeah. Yeah, and so we sort of, the reason it was Amigo Undead was because we wanted to do something that sort of touched on our sensibility, our weird sense of humor, for it it sort of felt like you said, like a movie movie-related, movie jokes and sort of film savvy, and we wanted to do it in this sort of, like, horror-comedy genre, which is easier to do in some ways on the cheap. Uh, and so, you know, we kind of – it became something we could we could manage to pull off, given limited resources and limited time, and, you know, within – it was actually a script we had that was a much bigger concept, but we stripped it down to the bare essentials to make, like, how do we make this more fun, more more indie – and more doable for us, mm-hmm.
1: you know. How tough was it not shooting in a nice air-conditioned room all the time, and you're kind of shooting on the elements with all that heat? Uh, was it a lot easier than it looked, or <laughs> what's the challenge <laughs> in kind of braving those? Was <laughs> it
4: was It was way harder than it looked. It was, uh, it was the blistering heat in the desert, and then freezing cold at night. Like, we had a two-week shoot, basically, with only one day off, I think, and, maybe two days off but it was like just so much temperature craziness it was like we went we went from a week of days where the days were so hot in between takes actors like ran into the cars and blasted the ac to then nights that were so cold they were running into cars and blasting the heat and you know <laughs> that was kind of that that was the spirit of the process but everyone had fun with it and you know it it kept a good mood throughout which i think translates
0: so how did you go about it? Since you already had this script before, what was the, the genesis of the script? What prompted this? I love the idea of the two brothers. One's adopted, uh, and he's Asian, and the other one is kind of a buffoon, and it's always the mm. mom likes you best, no mom likes you best, and they become right. estranged, but they get together for a birthday party under false pretenses. Um, where, yeah. where does a story like that come from? Are these from antics that the two of you have perpetrated?
4: You know, it's funny you say that. It's, there is a little bit There's a little bit of that to it. As ah. The movies we used to make, the shorts we used to make, we would almost always be out in the desert. Because living in L.A., it was just like you can drive out. Within an hour, you're in the desert. You can make a movie. It's visually interesting, and it's a bit of a departure. And, and nobody but, will bother you. Right, nobody will <laughs> bother <laughs> you. <laughs> right. And so we did that, and it kind of was like the experiences of going out there and we would always joke like oh what if accidentally someone died and what if we decided to bury them and then it sort of like spiraled from there this humor of like this dark humor of that kind of nightmare unfolding and you know it it, it was something that was kind of germinating in our heads for a long time because we did all this all this shoots out the desert so in some ways this weird assortment of characters on this weird misadventure in the middle of nowhere felt very familiar to us. Mm -hmm.
0: So how do you go about then stripping it down from your grander dreams with your original script into something, shall we say, affordable?
4: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, I think one big way we did it, and Ryan can probably speak to it on the director end better than me, but I think one big way we did it was you just sometimes you have ideas you put in a script that aren't necessary for the story but are just there because you think, wouldn't that be cool, you know, or, like, wouldn't that be fun to do? And when you're really talking about what makes the movie a good story, a lot of times you don't need that. And in some ways when you're stripping it down, you end up getting a little more creative, I think, and making funnier decisions. I think the version we ended up with is the better version uh Ryan I don't know if you have Yeah I I I was just thinking about uh
5: production value and <laughs> and how you strip out a lot of that uh I mean there's a lot of uh locations that were in the original script uh that we just stripped out so it's really like out in the middle of nowhere now and I think that actually makes it scarier in a lot of ways cuz they they're in this weird desert area where there's just doesn't seem to be anybody not even any roads uh really so
4: it it makes it scarier in some it, ways. It lent itself to the plot a little bit better too, because mm-hmm. yeah, they're you know they're really out there and there's real danger at and and the kind of people they interact with could become a little more eccentric and funnier as a result. I think.
2: Now, can, can you guys
1: talk about just uh, picking Randall as as your lead? He's just such a great straight man, and he he doesn't really need to say anything, but he's just inherently funny um can you what what is it about him that makes him a special lead for you guys especially with your film
5: well i think you kind of hit the nail on the head with that with um randall doesn't uh, he can say these ridiculous things and 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 say it in kind of a deadpan way and, and it's just hilarious i we were fortunate enough to meet randall through channel 101 which is a kind of an internet festival in hollywood um and, uh, and we knew him from that. And uh, we had always kind of admired each other's work. And so we just asked him to be in this. And, and mm. this was before the interview. Uh, so mm. I think he was a little more available then. <laughs> <laughs> he was already kind of an established uh, presence. I, in the I think film.
4: another thing, when we first started writing it, it wasn't, we, we, we changed the script for, for him because mm. we had this thought we were trying to cast the part and we couldn't really settle on someone we kept thinking, who's the best straight man we know? You know, who's going to do that the best with all these wacky other characters and performances? And Randall came to mind. And so then we thought, well, actually, we we changed it around to make it, to suit it to Randall. And I think it opened up so much more in terms of the script. And obviously, Randall's great, and we were very happy with it. But just kind of one of those things that, you know, wasn't always the plan from the get-go, but it
0: ended up working out really well. Well, George, let me let me ask you, how excited are you now with Randall's success, on Veep as, you know, Danny Chung. And now, fresh off the boat, I mean, it is, you know, it's a hit for ABC and his character of Lewis. How fortuitous is this timing? How exciting is that, that, you know, you've got that audience that makes follow to the film?
4: (laughs) It's amazing because it's not something anyone could have predicted in a way. And I think, you know, it's strange or maybe a little corny to say so, but I think if you make decisions... It's not always true, but I think if you make the right decisions for your movie because you want your movie to be good and you work with people who you genuinely think are funny and talented, things like this maybe are a little more likely to happen because you've put yourself in a position where you're, you made a good creative decision and I think other people realize, hey, Randall Park is really funny and he's great and we want to see more of him and it kind of like translated, you know, it felt like it was, it was appropriate. It, it doesn't surprise me, I guess I should say, and mm-hmm. I think that uh, yeah, it's it's great for the movie, and Randall's been a great champion of the movie the whole time too. So we're very excited about that.
1: I guess this is kind of a weird question, but in a in a way, was this a personal film for you guys? Because you know, growing up, did you guys ever, after a long day's work, just go home and play video games, or did you have like? Stupid friends who'd have Mad Libs in their in their backpack. You know, you, you you get a group of guys together, and we're kind of dumbed down so many ways. Um, so, in a way, does this have kind of a personal resonance for both you guys as writers?
5: I think that whenever you write characters, it's at least for for me like there there is a part of you in them. Like there's definitely aspects of both the uh, the Kevin and Norm characters that I think represent. You know us in some way. I, I mean,
4: George and I are
5: both pretty uh, introverted in, in in a lot of ways, um, but we're also kind of crazy, like Norm. Like <laughs> he went, he bought a, he went, he you know invested in some crazy scheme, and you know we went out and tried to make a feature film. <laughs> so I never you know, talked about that, but that's true. Great, no, and, I mean, great analogy there. <laughs> There's like the the, the serious. Uh, the straight-laced guy who's always planning stuff and and right. doesn't want to make any mistakes, and then and then the other half. I, I think yeah, there's there's definitely uh,
4: parts of of us in these characters. Yeah, I think that uh, we both kind of thought when we were writing the Kevin character, Randall's character, that there was a part of us that really connected to, particularly this idea that you know someone stops him on the way out of work in that early scene and says you want to go do something? It's like, oh, I kind of planned on doing something different. And it sounds stupid, but to us, it made sense. We're like, yeah, we're, we're kind of like that. And it seems like, well, that's part of what this story is going to be and who this story is about. So it is personal in that way. And, you know, like you said, all the crazy dumbed down guys in the desert thing that, you know, that we come by that naturally just because we made all these movies out in the desert and shorts with all of our buddies and you know, people act weird and silly, and that, that all fed into that, for sure.
0: Well, now, as, as great as Randall is and how perfectly cast he is, you've got to have the counter to that, which you found with Steve Ag as Norm. And then the supporting guys, especially Michael McCafferty, who just had me in stitches with his as the right-wing postal worker. Because you, yeah. you never know what a postal worker's going to do.
5: <laughs> right.
0: how, yeah, how well, did you go about you know, casting you know everyone else particularly the role of norm and locking on to steve and then the other three in your little in your little group here
4: um well i mean the, the short version is we all came through this channel almost all of us came through this channel 101 thing that we did together steve's been in it forever mike's been involved in it forever and so we all had kind of like Ryan said, appreciated each other's comedy and writing, and we wanted we'd work together a lot, and we liked working together. So everybody kind of was on the same page with that. Uh, some of the other guys just came through knowing people in the LA comedy scene, you know, comics and improv guys like Josh Faden, who plays Ian and Ed Galvez who plays Jovan, um, and that you know, that, again, it was sort of like this the energy of it. But I think with. Uh, Steve, with the casting of Norm, we kind of knew, we thought Steve would make an interesting fit for the part, and again, we kind of re-tailored it to him once we made that decision, Uh, and it it also opened up more, so in a similar sort of way, once we settled on Steve, we knew Norm would change a little to to fit what we thought was funny about Steve, like what we thought Steve could do really well, but they make a great team, um, we feel. So, you know. The,
0: your entire ensemble really plays well, you know, off of each other, and it very believable, very believable. You,
5: yeah. Oh, thank you. Now, I think it's because we all knew each other, and everyone is pretty comfortable from from the first minute that we started shooting, just uh, kind of riffing off of each other. There, there's uh, yeah, a yeah, good energy, like George said, with the whole thing. I think.
0: Now, something I find very interesting from a visual standpoint with the film is the work that you did with your cinematographer with Ben Pl- uh, Plumer. Um, mm-hmm. Because so often the desert, it's just dirt. And yeah. unless you're lensing it right, unless you're lighting it right and playing off the natural surroundings, it's just going to look like dirt. You have, <laughs> <laughs> you have texture going on here how did you go about designing did you storyboard did you shot list and what were the considerations for designing the visual look of the film to give it some depth
5: <clears throat> well that's a, that's an interesting question I I, <laughs> I um, well there's one thing that I with the desert that I always uh, I was very aware of is, is like foliage and stuff I, I, I don't I had this idea with it that I didn't want to see any green. Um, and so we actually ended up taking a lot of, like, like, green plants and that sort of thing out of it in post um, and uh, and gave it kind of this contrast, the dirty look. Um, I, I just thought it should contrast what uh, the, the, the city looks like earlier with, mm-hmm. with Kevin, how he's going into this weird... Uh,
4: world um <clears throat> but, yeah i think you know, you've I, talked a lot about your color palette and how you had yeah. to stick to it and you can see it in a lot of the scenes throughout it sort of it, it changes and grows as the movie goes on and it's kind of an interesting thing to watch visually to mm-hmm. see the the way you change the color palette through the yeah. course of the movie it was storyboarded beforehand uh,
5: just very loosely but you know we're, we're shooting like I don't know how many pages a day. Like it was like we sh- shot for eleven days and uh, like a you know a hundred page script. You know you can do the math. But so
0: you're doing about it, about nine ten pages a day.
5: Yeah, yeah it was crazy. <laughs> so it, it was it, unfortunately like the the visuals were were kind of a, a, a secondary as as to you know just getting everything uh, everything shot. But uh, but one of the things that I was Aware of constantly was was color that that was like one of the few things that I uh, I knew that if there was kind of a limited palette, then it would at least give the film kind of a unified look. It's like the the very baseline kind of thing you mm-hmm. can do. So
0: now you've got some really beautiful night shots in there that the, they're very lux, they have a luxurious feel with the inkiness <laughs> of you. the black. Did you shoot day for night night or night for night? What how did you do that?
5: No, it's shot uh, night for night, uh, for the most part, I'm trying to remember,
4: there, there might be a couple of things that are just sort of shot kind of in between. Mm-hmm. Kind of like dusk. We did a few <coughs> things like at dusk and a few things at dawn, but yeah. like, we did mostly shoot the night at night. And we, uh, I personally, I think that the stuff, there's stuff in the middle there at night at the convenience store gas station that looks really, really great. It came out really well. Um And a lot of it was just, you know, Ryan's kind of a visual artist as well as a filmmaker. He builds things and makes models and props, and he's been in production design. So I think the ability to kind of identify what what would look good, what you could use or maximize the look of the movie, um, we that that we really owe it to that his experience with all of that with his production design experience. Mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But, yeah, it um, the night stuff we shot at night, and it's tough to light at night. You have to be creative, you know. That was another way in which we had to kind of...
5: Yeah, we, they were all um, mostly LED uh, lights. Wow. Uh, they were fairly new at the time. Uh, I think there's a lot more. You know, I you wish uh, Ben was here. He could talk about it more. But he didn't <laughs> have very much. So he, he did a very, very good job of uh, getting it to look you know, a lot nicer than the, than the equipment that we had. Um,
0: uh, now I know you were shooting but digitally. Uh, what were you What were you shooting on? What were you using?
5: It was a red, scarlet. Red. Yeah.
0: I was gonna say because now you know Sony's got this great F six out now that shoots with virtually no light at all at night.
5: Yeah, I've seen that. It's 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 crazy. It almost doesn't look like night, really. It's Like a weird. Been,
0: te- it has a weird. It has a weird texture. Like
5: if you were there in person, it would seem like pitch black.
0: But but it um, works really well for horror films.
5: Yeah, oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> I. I it, it's funny, George and I have been doing this so long now since um, since high school, and and there's like there's so much more you can do now with uh, with equipment like we were shooting like on mini DV in the
4: old days.
5: right.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was shooting on Super 8 in my day.
1: <laughs> you know, just in layman's in layman's terms, for you guys, how important is it, just running through the festival circuit and and showing your film out there to different audiences from all around the world? How how has that experience been for you, um, with your film?
4: You know, it was it's it's a unique thing to get to see even if you could if there's festivals we didn't get out to there were a few of them we couldn't make it to mm. but for me it was really cool uh from the writing perspective to see what jokes play in different places and why and how you know mm. how the reaction varies from place to place um some some you know the movie always gets laughs which is great it gets less throughout but there's some things that seem to play really well in some places and in other places, it would be something completely different that they love, you know, and that's a cool learning process. And it's cool because you get to see, you, you get to share the movie with people who are fans of movies, film fans and the people who go to horror fests or comedy fests or you know, they're, they're like us and they get what we're doing. And, you know, that's, that's kind of cool too, because you want, uh, you want the kind of people you make the movie for. When you set out to make a movie, you kind of think, "Well, I think it's the kind of movie I'd like to see." And it's very rewarding to know that other people out there are enjoying it. It's it's the best part of it in a way. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, festivals this, are always fun. <laughs> and now everybody will be able to see Amigo Undead on June second, correct?
4: June second, yes. June second, really VOD,
0: VOD and digital, VOD, yes. courtesy of the smart people at Gravitas, who were who were intelligent enough to. Uh, take the distribution for this for you
4: yes absolutely we're very happy and excited yeah june 2nd
0: so that's vod digital when's dvd coming
4: you know what i don't know what the plan with dvd is people are asking and we don't have any there isn't a current uh timetable on that so we'll we we'll, i think we're going to see how this goes first and you know and then kind of figure it out from there with gravitas but uh that's as far as I know right now, but um, you know everybody's consuming their movies digitally these days, so that's kind of the that's the go to place.
0: Well, I'm still a go to go to the theater girl. So, oh yeah, yeah.
4: I, 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 <laughs> guys, <laughs> there's nothing like that, but you know,
0: guys, thank you so much, Amigo Undead, Ryan Nagata, Jordan Gentleman, and I can't wait to see what you do next.
4: Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having us and taking the time. It was really fun. Oh. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, guys. Bye. Okay.
4: Thank you.
0: Bye. And that was Amigo Undead. Very quickly
1: before I go to break, it's worth watching a second time because there's some really great one-liners. In the
0: oh, film. they're terrific. Very funny stuff. Very good yeah. stuff. So we're going to take a quick break, Brian, and then we'll be back to hear what Elliot Lester has to say about Nightingale. Mm-hmm. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is the number one newspaper in Culver City. Covering local news, politics, and community events. With sports by Mitch Chortkov and movie reviews by Debbie Lynn Elias, Culver City Observer is the place to go to be in the know. When you think Culver City and the heart of Screenland, think Culver City Observer. When you think movies and movie reviews, think Culver City Observer Culver City Observer a division of Arizona Newspaper Group is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com And we're back with Behind the Lens I'm Debbie Lynn Lice along with Greg Sri with deepestdream.com Thank you Yes, deepestdream.com Yes, deepest dream. For those of you that aren't going to watch the video portion, you know, we'll we'll remind you of these things occasionally.
1: Yeah, I thought we wouldn't go on video this week, so that's why I... No, just, I didn't apologize. apologize. I, didn't, I didn't spruce up for the occasion. You didn't so. spruce up. All
0: yeah, right. You, so you guys, maybe you don't want to see the video this week because you really don't want to see what Greg looks I
1: like. love Nightingales though.
0: Nightingale is – you love Nightingales or Nightingale?
1: N- 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 Nightingales. I love Nightingales. And then you get to transition to Nightingale.
0: Yes, this so. movie. You know, Elliot Lester. This is a real. Jo- this film was a real joy for me to discover last year. Is it scary? No. No, but it's a psychological bender watching okay. David Oyelowo's performance. Mm. Um, Elliot is part of the Bandito Brothers. Bandito Brothers are based in Culver City. Um, it, guys like Scott Waugh, who directed Need for Speed, Lance Gilbert, who was stunt coordinator. Mm. These are uh, Mouse McCoy, who worked with Scott. They did Act of Valor.
1: Okay. Oh, wow, yeah. Which
0: is a perfect movie for this weekend. Um, and I have had the the privilege of knowing Scott Waugh's brother, Rick Roman Waugh, their dad, Fred, Lance Gilbert, for for over 30 years. So to know the boys as youngsters, to see them grow up and see them put together Bandito Brothers with all this second unit stuff. They get a ton. Mouse McCoy has a new commercial out there for Mustang. Um, They do the real heavy driving precision stunt work shooting. And Elliot, in addition to Nightingale, He's done music videos, he's done commercials, and he went from Nightingale into a web series called Chop Shop that was very cool, very cool. cool. Mm. So for me to see one of my boys, you know, put out a film like Nightingale just makes me very, very happy. And it was
1: one of your favorites from last year's LAFF? It was
0: definitely one of my favorites, and it remains one of my favorite films of the year now that it's actually, it'll be on HBO on May 29th. Okay. but you know it's an interesting story it was written by Frederick Mensch um and I asked Elliot for, to start off with how did the story come to him given his music video background and you see the fluidity of camera movement within uh, Nightingale you know what made the, what Taylor made this for him
3: I mean if you want to go about how the script came to mm-hmm. me I had another movie I was doing at the same time um I, I, you know, my producing partner, Josh Weinstock, who's a wonderful guy, he said, listen, you should read the script, he gave it, he literally gave it to me on a Wednesday, and I picked it up, and I couldn't put it down, and something sp- spoke, to me in, in, you know, just artistic terms, I was like, I have to make this, it was one guy, camera, script, it's a way of relearning your craft. It's like, if you want to find your voice, how are you going to do it? So let's take it back to the basic, basic talents of cinema. I never thought about it in terms of scale. I just mm-hmm. thought in terms of, like, this is a story I feel I really want to tell because the character is so interesting. And Frederick's script just spoke to me. And unlike with a lot of movies, I'm sure you know, it didn't take two years to make. It right. took weeks to make. We optioned it on the Monday uh, we went to see Katrina Wolf at BN Films, she green it wow. within a matter of a month, and we were off and making the film, shot it over you know, a few weeks. Um, I met with a lot of actors though, I will say that, we definitely met with a lot of people. But there was something, David had been on my radar mm-hmm. as a guy who'd been in films, uh, hadn't done an American leading role. Mm-hmm. Um, so when his, a- he, when his agent called, they were like, look, just meet him. I, uh, you know, of course you want to meet new talent. Sure. But I wasn't expecting what I met in the room, which is, I don't know if you've met him, but there's a... No, I haven't. He, he, there's a um, spiritual connection, and I use that in the broadest sense. Mm-hmm. The man just emanates, and he speaks the truth he is an, an artist in the senses and I, I try to align my, I try to align myself with that you're an artist looking for the truth I'm looking for the truth in the character the truth in the story and the honesty. and he's, he was just like look you know and he's like oh Elliot yeah, I don't know if this is going to work I don't know who this character is I don't even know how to begin prepping this part I just know that if we do it and we try we might make art we might make something great and there might be blood on the wall you know, so, you know, we shook hands and he walked away and he came up to me after the meeting. and said, can you, just do one, can you just do one thing for me? Can you just let me know quickly if it's not going to happen? And I've got of course, you know. I hadn't made my mind up. Mm-hmm. So I went home and then he sent me this beautiful letter the following day, which was an actor talking about commitment to a role. He was telling me about Hayward. This play in London, where he'd been shackled on on stage for like three, four hours, and what you're hearing in that is passion and commitment, not a guy who's just showing up. Because I've worked with actors who just show up for the paycheck, yeah, and that's fine as well. That's fine. You need those films.
0: And but as we got more in depth, and we're going to go out of order here, and we're going to jump to clip four in a second. Um, because the visuals are a real strong suit here, in addition to David's performance. The cinematographer uh, here is Peter Vermeer. And if you recognize the name of Vermeer, yes, he is a direct descendant of Vermeer, the master painter. Uh, no cousin, direct descendant. And uh, it was something that Elliot did not know. They'd been friends for 18 years, and he learned it. But the visuals are so key here. And here's what Elliot had to say about designing the visuals. How did the two of you develop this visual language? Sorry, this, vi- this visual tonal bandwidth, the, col- the use of the color, <clears throat> the saturation, which, yes, it, it goes with the whole, you know, the surreal aspect of Peter Snowden's mind and his reality. But the way you use the camera and the way you use light and color, how did you two? So, we, design we you this? know,
3: there are, when you're shooting like that and you, you have one actor, You've got time to prep. Mm-hmm. And prepped and prepped and prepped. There were no mistakes. I mean, I, I say that in the sense of we worked off what I, I... When I do a movie or a project, I do what's called a Bible. And Peter would come in and meet with me, and we would turn pages, read the scenes, and we would write down ideas, and we would form a shot list with colours... And images mm-hmm. from, not from films per se, but from photography and art, mm-hmm. you know, or like a line that would inspire. And we would map out the entire film. You know, obviously with the blocking, you know, David, I, I we would work together on a blocking. We'd have to, but the color palette was, you know, would get filthier and filthier and filthier. As he starts to strip back,
5: mm-hmm.
3: you know, it's like staring at it's like going to Vegas, you know, mm-hmm. at night, and you stare at it in beautiful neon, and in the morning when they're cleaning up, it's kind of ugly. And we had an amazing, we did have an amazing crew, you know, we, you, you know, Peter's light is very, very specific. We wanted, mm-hmm. we didn't want anything to feel too directional, except at the end when the lights moved to the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we wanted it to feel very bounced, and, you know, or, or, you know, summer, late,
0: late summer. Mm-hmm. And sadly, that is all the time we have today once again at The Wire. So we'll hear the rest of what Elliot has to say next week. We've got uh, some more guests calling in with some new films next week. And until then, behind the lens, tune in long gone.